Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Tom Hanks. I mean, that's about all you need to hear, right? I mean, Sleepless in Seattle, Philadelphia, Saving Private Ryan, Joe versus the Volcano. Those are movies that Tom Hanks starred in. His newest film is A Man Called Otto, based on the book A Man Called Ove. Hanks plays the title character, Otto Anderson. When the movie starts, Otto is mourning the loss of his wife, Sonia. He's not sure how he'll move on with his life, or even whether he wants to live. A man called Otto revolves around Otto's relationship with his neighbors, specifically Marisol and Tommy. They just moved into the neighborhood with their two daughters. Despite Otto's demeanor, one that you might charitably call grouchy, Marisol and Tommy are determined to make friends with him. In this scene, they show up at Otto's door with a peace offering, some food. Hi. Well, we wanted to properly introduce ourselves because, you know, we're going to be neighbors and everything, so... Okay. Okay. Bye. Are you always this unfriendly? I'm not unfriendly. Okay, you're not. No, 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 no. You're not unfriendly. Every word you say is like a warm cuddle. Well, Tom Hanks, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Oh, great to be here. It's nice to have you here. I'm a first-time caller. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Are you? Uh, are, are there things that you are very grumpy about? Uh, turn signals. I mean, literally, put your blinker on. Mm-hmm. You know, the person in front of you. Or here's it is: you're coming up to an intersection, and a car is coming the, the opposite direction, and they're going slow, and they're going slow, and they're going slow, and they're stopping in the middle of the street. And you don't know why. Mm-hmm. It's because they're making a left turn. Right. And if they had just turned on their blinkers, I would have known what they were doing. And I would have understand why they were slowing down. I feel like it's the, I would have known. It's not when, for me, not when someone cuts you off. No, just no, I understand me that. Being, yeah. Me being held in the liminal space between knowing what's going on and not knowing what's going on. I can be in a car full of kids and I will unleash you moron. Thank you for the use of the turn signal. Way to use your blinker, idiot. I mean, I go and when I'm in the car, you by go my, full idiot. Oh, when I go when I'm in the car by myself, I use salty language. Oh my uh, gracious! I use baseball dugout language, uh, <laughs> and you do not want to be because it is. Look, first of all. I was very good at driver's training, and the first thing you learn is drive defensively. Make sure other people know what you're doing. Use your turn signal 100 feet before you get to where you're going. It's very, very basic. Tell me what you're doing. Because if I'm making a left turn or if I'm going straight and you're slowing down to stop in the middle of the... And I don't know why. I don't know why. So therefore, I can plow into you. You could T-bone me. Anything in that. But if you had just literally go... That's all I need. And then you go and I let you go. or I, it, it all works out fine. Follow the frigging rules, you stupid moron. Give me your license. Give me your license right now. Roll down the window. Hey, roll down the window. 
I want, I want the license and registration right now. You, sir, are not going to drive in my town again. I'm spilling my tea as I'm talking about it. You, so, and I mean, I want to be clear because our, our at-home radio and podcast audience yeah. uh, can't see you. No. You literally just spilled your tea on the sofa here okay, at the Four so, Seasons. So, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> so the answer is yes, I do have some of those kind of – and, and, and that is it. Now, I've since made my peace with the technology that doesn't work. The menu, press, select, press, you know, I, 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 I know that stuff is going to be screwed up all the time, but it's the powers of somebody else when they're behind the wheel if they don't know the basics of simple, courteous driving that, that sends me over the edge. I mean, Colorado is sort of about the ways that an accumulation of the pains and fears of life can lead to mm. anger. And sort of sadness and desperation. Do you have to choose not to get involved in that as you get older? Like, do you have to choose not to become a grumpy old man? I think it isn't the trick sign of like saying, I don't have time to learn all this new stuff because here's what used to happen. I used to just dial the phone and get the number. You know, I'd, you never had to like, thank you for calling. You know, even my own office now has you. You don't dial in directly to somebody. You dial into a recording, and then says press one, and then hold for your option. You don't have the direct line. Uh, I would think let's get Tom Hanks a red phone in in his home office. Yes, commissioner. That he you picks know, up. Uh, and, yeah, no, it doesn't quite work that way. I think as one gets older, it's like look. Um, there's other ways to spend one's time as opposed to reading the manual on how to, you know some new new type of uh, of technology. Now that's almost like you know. Look, I, I am a bit of a luddite. I would rather, I would probably rather type a letter on a uh, um, on a typewriter than have to have a long protracted co- phone conversation. So I really only have one or two things to say to with somebody. But that's not really the point. I think the point is is that uh, I, I I got enough going on here. You know, I the if I have to actually go and study something in order to figure out how to do uh, you know one of the basic chores of uh, one's daily life, I'll just do it the old fashioned way. Thanks very much. I don't. Uh, but we, I mean, we also live in a world where, uh, or at least in a country that is like seized in paroxysms of. I'm not going to learn how to deal with new stuff. Like we had an entire presidential administration based on people's discomfort with the idea that the world might be different from how it used to be. Yeah, that's dumb. Uh, (laughs) I think here's the goofy thing. I actually think now I'm 66 years old. Uh, I remember the first Earth Day and it became our responsibility to stop littering. It became our responsibility to start recycling. And it would, not only was it good business, this was also really smart and made our cities cleaner. We, I, I think I'm of a generation that actually learned that, oh, it comes down to personal responsibility. So I, I have to actually like make sure that uh, I give everybody a fair shake and I have the correct change when I get on the bus and uh, uh, all sorts of these other small little things that you do in order to what? In order to make the world progress a little bit easier. So you can't you can't be obstinate in the fact that I'm not going to learn anything new. Here's here's a, here's a pretty good example. Like remember when e-readers were going to just wipe books off the face of the planet? I had an e-reader for a while, you know, and it worked fine and I could get a book anytime I wanted to and I could travel uh you know with um 
40, 42,000 books, you know, in a slim little volume and I wouldn't have to carry them with it. But guess what? I read books in real time. So if I'm going away for two weeks, I can take two or three books and I got everything covered. doesn't take up that much space. So I think uh, we're a bit of the generation that has learned that there is a quantity, but there is also a quality too, that you can make a choice. To what's, the, what's the easiest and better way to get by it? You don't want to embrace uh, what's ignorance just for the sake of making your life easier. You actually want to make an intelligent choice about what is kind of like good and what is uh, what is uh, unnecessary? Because there's an awful lot of people. There's also a lot of enterprises out there that are going to try to convince you that this is actually a great thing to have, uh, and all you have to do is pay us thirty five dollars, you know, and 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 make sure you constantly renew it, and and then you'll then your life will actually be better. No, it won't. What it will be is uh, it'll be make your business profitable and won't really affect my life very much at all. So I think we're, I think we're, we might, I might be of a generation that is judiciously choosing um, the, the stuff that is worthwhile and the stuff that's not. I mean, I just want to go ahead and say, if anybody's listening to this, only 10 or $20 a month, you can become a member of your public radio station that you're listening to. And this that's on a good deal. I'm going to tell right you right now. now. Okay. Let's, let's, let's break that down. Okay. 10 or 20. I, how much I, I listen to public radio, I'm going to say probably somewhere between uh, one hour a day and 17 hours a day, because sometimes I just leave it on all the day. Well, that's a, that's a friggin' bargain right there. And it's a bargain in real time. I'm getting my money's worth every time I turn it on. If I was to pay $20 for a service that I never listened to or never subscribed to or never put on, guess what? I'm out 20 bucks. So it actually... That's a judicious choice that ones make in order to make life one's life a little bit a little bit easier. I will say that my colleague Kevin, who's sitting to my left, used to work at a local NPR affiliate station here in Los Which Angeles. Which one? Which one? The and one in Santa Monica or the one in Pasadena? The one in Pasadena and uh, bad blood between those two. <laughs> Blood. It's like the battle between Volvo and Saab. You got to decide which imported Swedish car are you going to root for, the one in Pasadena or the one in Santa Monica? Probably. I do appreciate that uh, your go-to example of uh, of a like famous feud is Volvo versus Saab. Well, you know, you could go, yeah. What are it you gonna is pretty do? public radio, unfortunately or unfortunately. Is there that much difference between a Ford and a Chevy anymore? I will say this. The battle that you, you make, a, there's one word that, describes the difference between those two stations. Music. One has, one don't. And some people don't need music and some people got to have it. Um, Okay. Let's talk about something else. Tom, what is an example of something that has been work for you to understand or adjust to as a grown-up adult, as a person over 40 or 50, let's say? That's a myriad of things. That was important. I mean, we're not talking about now you have to plug your car in. Oh, no. That's, yeah, that, that, that actually makes life a little easier because then the only time you're stopping at a gas station is for, you know, slim gyms and to use the bathroom. I would say the, it, is the, it, is, uh, it is the battle against cynicism, you know? I think it's so much fun to rag on everybody. Because uh, you're in competition with them uh, when you're younger, and you're you're uh, 
you're competitive and you're you're a little bit on the selfish and it's really really fun in order to make yourself feel better by essentially ragging on somebody's efforts <clears throat> not like it whether it's good or bad you know celebrating their failures and then sort of like trying to examine somebody else's success and i don't just mean in the business i just mean you know across the board i think as one gets older i think you realize that cynicism gets you nowhere isolation gets you nowhere procrastination gets you nowhere if you don't do it who's going to do it but i think they're the default position of an awful lot of society is saying i don't think that's so great what's so special about that you know why why would anybody bother bother doing that a lot of the media is based on you know you know, exercises in hilarious cynicism, you know, everybody is doing something stupid and everybody, every, everything is, is worth ragging on. And uh, I think that you're, when you get older, you begin to appreciate effort for the sake of effort and authenticity for the sake of authenticity. Um, I learned uh, a while back um, from somebody who, you know, is, is quite accomplished that there is no joy in slagging on somebody's failure. That the best thing you could say is, well, you know, that if it didn't quite work, did it? That's, that's the most honest appraisal you can say about anything, uh, any, particularly any creative enterprise. Didn't quite work because as a storyteller and someone who is, look, this is my job, you know, not only is it my job, it's my joy. When I, <clears throat> when I started being a storyteller, vis-a-vis actor, you know, stage manager when I was younger, whatever it is, taking part in the ensemble effort in order to give people theirs, uh, their solids worth of entertainment. Failing is just so painful, you know, not getting there was just, it, it, <clears throat> it rattled you. It made you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and think, what did I do wrong that we lost them in the third act? Or why is it that I can't break story on this one? I think, what is it about this role that is escaping me, that is scaring me, that I truly don't have any faith in my ability to do that? Having gone through all of that, you realize that we're all just trying our best, man. There's, and there's so much, um, there's so many uh, moments of serendipity that are beyond your control. And there's sometimes you just run out of wherewithal and instinct. And then you can only have faith in somebody else. And you can only have faith in somebody else in coming along and giving you the catalyst that gets you along there. And that, being willing to use, is, is worth the battle. So I, as I'm at the age that I am now, I think I am 10 times less cynical I was at the age of 46 than I am at the age of 66. Because I just know how hard it is. And I, I now appreciate people trying really hard and almost getting there. And even the ones that are that are kind of like, you know, didn't quite get there. All the worst thing, the worst thing I could say about anybody is that didn't didn't quite work, did it? Because I've been on the receiving end of boy, that didn't work. And what can you do except bow your head down in humble submission? <laughs> this is true. It did not work, but you only learn by your failures anyway. So embrace that and move on. We've got so much more to get into with Tom Hanks when we return. He started as a comedy actor, but he's won dozens of awards for his work in drama. I'll ask him whether making that transition was scary. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Parenting. It's hard, but don't worry, you're not alone. Belly up to the low bar with one bad mother and let us remind you that fine is good enough. 
they want to climb on different things. And how am I supposed to keep them both from dying? <laughs> there is a right way to do this. And if I can figure out that right way, I'm going to be a good parent. So that is not a thing. So join us each week and let us tell you that you are doing a good job. You can listen to One Bad Mother on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Tom Hanks. The Academy Award-winning actor is starring in the new movie, A Man Called Otto, which is out now in theaters. Let's get back into our conversation. I sometimes think that had I not backed into a radio show where I had to put something on the radio every week since I was 19. I've been doing this show since I was 19. Wow. Like, since I was 19, every week I had an hour, and if I wasn't there there could be an emergency broadcast alert and I, and it would be illegal for me to not be there to press the button or whatever. So, so let, you, let me you ask gotta you a question. be there. Let me ask you a question. Is that deadline, was that deadline good for you? Well, that's the thing. Like, I think that to me, and I wonder if it's the case for you, if, if I didn't have that requisite that I had to show up and I had to have something to put on the air because it was worse to not have something on the air than, you know, yeah. ready to go. That I don't know if I could have done something and gotten better because I was, and to some extent am, so paralyzed at the prospect of doing a bad job um, that maybe I wouldn't try. This is what is terrorizing about what we do for a living. I mean, I try to put off saying yes to something as long as possible. <laughs> saying yes to say, okay, let's do this means you are on, number one, you're on the clock. You start working from that very from that moment. I mean, if you're not even if you're not going to shoot something for 18 months, you start working right then and you begin the job for 18 months. Then comes the time where you actually have to go up and start. You have to start. <sighs> that's that's. Uh, I, I always want to throw up the first day before we start shooting because as soon as we start, it's locked in stone. And maybe you can go back and replace it. Maybe it won't end up in the movie. But your address of it is now on the record. And if you don't have it, ooh, la, la, no one knows you more than you, <laughs> that, you don't, that you don't have it. And you might be able to fake people out. You know, you might be able to uh, intimidate folks into buying what your goods are, but you yourself know what it is. So I, I actually, in some ways, envy like a newspaper columnist that has to put out a column, you know, like Herb Cain did when I was a kid uh, once a day, or someone who has to put together a one-hour radio program because I said, well, you know, man, he's he's got a week to figure this out, doesn't he? He's, you know, can't you do, I'll do this for 20 minutes and I'll do that for 20 minutes. Uh, but I get the uh, the pressure of the deadline and have you ever said, okay, that's the show, and then the last thing you want to do is have to hear that show. Because <laughs> I don't watch these movies a second time because I see them once and they don't change, man. They don't become better with age. I'll tell you this, though. I, years ago, did a show about interviewing. And I, I asked, I, I interviewed all these famous interviewers, some of whom were like my heroes, like Terry Gross and stuff. Mm. And I interviewed Larry King. And Larry King was not one of my heroes. I had no negative feelings, particularly about Larry King. But very unexpectedly, I think I learned the most from talking to Larry King, who famously 
<laughs> was ill prepared for his interviews, let's okay, say. Wow. But also a guy, you know, he had a job where he had to when he was on the radio, he was doing four hours a day. Yeah. You can't prepare for that. Late really. night with Larry King, sure. Um, but like the thing that I learned from him that did not come naturally to me, that strikes me as something that is essential in acting as well, is that all the preparation in the world uh, cannot prepare you for necessarily, and in fact, sometimes can stand in the way of presence. Mm-hmm. And like, you can't muscle your way through acting. Like you have to be able to like, look, there's preparation you can do to understand your character, understand what your character is trying to do in a scene, your character's goals, the body, you know, various things, right? But like at the end of the day, effort isn't the difference. Yeah, you don't, yeah, you don't, you don't get credit for moxie, you know? There's no way you can suck it up. You know, years ago, uh, when I was in uh, at the Great Lake Shakespeare Festival in Cleveland, Ohio, I, I just couldn't believe I had the job. Uh, I couldn't believe that somehow someone said, I think you can, you should be an actor and you should learn these lines. You should get undo it. We, we got yelled at by the director, Dan Sullivan, who was a very well-regarded director, very famous. It was rotating repertory theater. I was in the intern class with a bunch of people that I'm still friends with. And the the equity actors, the veterans that were up there, they had just opened a production of Hamlet the night before. And so they had an opening night party. And so many people were hungover and exhausted. And we were supposed to be rehearsing uh, The Taming of the Shrew. And everybody was listless. Nobody was really trying hard. And it was hot. And it was, you know, it was... Uh, Tuesday or Saturday or whatever it is and 10 in, 10 in the morning and everybody is still living on their coffee and you know no one is really there. And uh, Dan Sullivan yelled at everybody. He said, you guys, you guys aren't here today. You don't understand, man. You guys got to show up on time and you got to know the text and you got to have an idea. Otherwise, I can't do anything with you. And I, I, I actually thought, oh, well, th- there's our responsibility right there. If you show up on time, because if you're late, you're gone, period, the end. They will not put up with you being late. This is one of the best lessons you could possibly learn. Late, that means you're not here at all. So bye-bye. Secondly, know the text. Now, that means know your dialogue, certainly. That's the, that's the minimum that you need to do. But you also have to know the text. You have to know the play. You have to know the story. You have to know the intent of what all of these scenes are. You need to know what your place is in it. But the last thing was you have to have an idea, and that's the great intangible. You don't have a future uh, in, 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 the, in the rehearsal process or the shooting process unless you have an idea in your head, meaning not one that you explain, not say, I really think I would like to have a chicken on my shoulder for the court. You know, you don't come in with that. When you come in with a euphemistic chicken on your shoulder that no one will see, that you just say, well, I'm actually playing this as though I have a chicken on my shoulder. And that's why I'm so interesting in this scene. Now, that's a stupid way in order to put forward this idea that unless I carry something around that is mine and mine alone, all I'm doing is saying the words and hitting the marks, which oddly enough in movies sometimes works just fine. But in order to have something bigger going on behind your eyes, you've got to have that idea inside yourself that no one knows and no one wrote down. It's yours and yours, yours alone. That gives me um, faith in whatever is going to come next. 
I think my job, Elman, I'm purely an actor. When I'm in there and I'm interpreting what the screenwriter put down on paper and what the director wants the scene to be like, uh, I believe I can motivate anything because that's my job. And that's the idea that I carry around. Um, so because a director can say, for whatever reasons, go to the window. Go, go and look out the window. The, I wouldn't go and look out the window. And the director says, well, if you don't go and look out the window, then I don't have any reason to cut away to uh, Meryl Streep in the phone book, in the phone booth. I said, well, my job is to, okay, you need me to go to the window, watch this. What I'm going to do when I go to the window is open it up so my chicken on my shoulder can get some air. <laughs> that's that's why that's why I can go. So motivating anything like that, uh, that is that requirement. Now, that's not the same thing as having a deadline. It's actually having an open interpretation to anything that you can that you can that you can go anywhere that that you need to. And it took me a really long time to figure that out. Some directors will say, "Do you, would you go to the window?" And my question is, would you like me to go? To, I know there's all this kind of like stuff that whether whether or not you're part of a uh, true ensemble collaboration or if you're just in the hands of a dictator that says, um, here's what we're doing here right now. And the, the actor's job is to say, okay, all right, if that's what we're doing here, watch this. That's what I like to say. You need me to do this? Stand back. No one's going to do it better than I can. Now that's cocky to some degree, but it also, man, that's a hard. It's a. It's been a long road in order to get to the place where I thought I can. I can give people, give the bosses what they want. Was it scary to give up being funny? And I don't mean that you're not often funny performing now, but you know, funniness is a great defense for a performer, and there have been times when you have been called on not to be funny and i wonder if it was scary to no let go of that no what is it's sometimes a relief to not have to to do a comedy because it's the hardest thing there is to do because sometimes it's simply not funny <laughs> the words as they are written are not funny now it could be kooky and it could be marketed as a comedy. And believe me, I've made some comedies that are not funny uh, because there is something that is untrue about what you're going for. I will tell you, when I, when I, my, look, my, I, I got hired in the business because I was loud and I was kind of funny. There was oftentimes I was the funniest dude in the room, partly because uh, it's a self-defense mechanism and I was, you know, shirking a, an awful lot of responsibility. But when I was doing Bosom Buddies with Peter Scolari, peas in a pod, he and I spoke a secret language between us. Gestalt, a look, a shrug, a couple of words meant everything. Because we spent so much time together, connected at the hip, making stuff that was either funny on itself or being tasked with the writers to say, hey, you you know, spice the fups, guys, sprinkle some fairy dust on this for us. We had a we had a phrase called "boys chuffa off," which means scenes ended with me and Peter goofing around with each other, uh, just in order to make ourselves laugh, in order to get to the end of the scene. And there was a period of time where they tried to write our chuffa for us, and we said, "Guys, 
give us the freedom, please, to figure out what our own chuffa is. That pressure week after we talk about a deadline is be funny at the at the end of the week. That there was an awful lot of stuff that went into it. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're having a horrible day with you know your family or the dentist or bad news from anybody, and you got to come in and be funny with Peter Scolari and Hildy and Buffy, have to figure out how they're going to stay in the all women's hotel. That could be really hard in order to make make fly. The other thing that goes along with it is that it, a quote-unquote drama, I think, is really boring if it's only dramatic every step of the way. The, the, the great fun of all of this is to find real human behavior in, in, you know, in certain circumstances. And people talk the way they talk, and they have, their, they have their desires, no matter how serious as a heart attack something is going on inside, inside a film. So inside a, inside a story. So it's not the, – the task is always to deliver unto the audience that which is enshrined and carved in stone as far as the, as far as the, the words on paper and the intent of the director goes. You have to be real. I don't want to – you know, it's highfalutin to quote Spencer Tracy, but uh, I think he once said, there's no trick to acting. You just hit the marks and tell the truth. And damn, if that ain't what it's required – and it's really hard to tell the truth sometimes when you haven't figured out what it is, or someone is asking for you to lie and make it faith in the first place, or if the truth isn't there um, in the words that you're that you're supposed to talk about. But if you if you're in like-minded individuals, the collaboration in order to do that, everybody works and helping you hit the marks and tell the truth. So you're. You know, your parents got divorced when you were very young. You live with your dad. Well, for, the, had, for, for the first time. Yeah. They got, they got divorced a lot. You had a kind of, your your dad had a kind of serial family situation mm-hmm. for you. Like you have people who were your step-siblings that you are like not in touch with or, you know. Um, and that is, you know, that can either lead to just total alienation or a, a life where you make it a priority to engage with others and ingratiate yourself. But I can only imagine that it's tough when you go to 10 different schools or whatever it was to, and you're good at ingratiating yourself, which I presume you were to do more than that. Right. I can seduce a room. Yeah. Yeah. When you're, when you became an actor, you're still young and you're funny enough and loud enough to get over on being charming, um, which is kind of a similar thing. There's right? a danger to that. Yeah, right. And you're still in a mode where you're pretty externally focused, right? Like when you're being funny on a sitcom, you're making the audience laugh when you chuffa. Well, yeah. And also, you also have to be funny on talk shows and stuff like that. And that's no less of a performance, but at the same time, it's, you know, it's an instinctive one. So, so at some point, like when you say making choice, when you say like, what do you want to do was the question your agent asked you. Like other than make everyone else around me happy or comfortable. Uh-huh, right. I kind of got the impression that that question had never Oh dear you. God, no, no, it hadn't. It's like what what opportunities are out there? You know, here's what you can do now. It's never like what 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 do you what do you want to do? Uh, 
Is there a question in there? Or you, I mean, that's a that's like a, those are parallel things in your life to have to make that choice in your work and also in your life. Like, I want to have agency, not be responsive. Right. Uh, I. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, agency, purchase. I think um, purposefulness. I don't. I don't. I don't want to waste anybody's time, and I don't want to do anything that is so false that the manipulative uh, aspect of it is is an obvious one. So, being asked, "What do you want to do?" If if I was going to have to parse out like an individual moment since then that I can say is. This is 100% of what I was going for, and it turned out the way I wanted it to turn out. Um, it was when we sort of like had to fight in order to do this movie called Greyhound, which is nothing more than 58, 48 hours at sea in the middle of the Atlantic, in the middle of World War II, with nobody knowing if they were going to make it or not, and I'm the captain of the ship. Do I break radio silence with a message to the Admiralty? But does that let the wolf pack know just how vulnerable we are? What would the message be? Help needed urgently. Now help needed, that means urgently. Needed isn't needed. Just help. That's all the Admiralty needs to hear for a modified rendezvous point. Germans might miss a message as short as that. I wouldn't need to take this risk if I'd been smarter yesterday. What you did yesterday got us to today. It's not enough, Charlie. Not nearly enough. And it always came down to nothing that I said, no specific plot point that played itself out, no no shot that demonstrated that the bad guys were out there and the good guys were over there, nothing. It came down to literally what's going on right now in Captain Ernie Krauss when he honestly is asking himself, am I making the biggest mistake ever right now? That, to me, is the be-all and end-all of any sort of motion picture moment. It's when, and you can go back to light moments. You can go back to, you know, James Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life, Dear God, Help Me. Or you can go back to, you know, Danny Kaye, you know, in some movie like that. You, you can go back to uh, any sort of place where nothing is said, there's no dialogue, and yet everybody who watches the movie knows exactly what is going on in that character. So like, that's high country, man. And I don't I think I've come close and not not landed there a bunch of other times. But this odd amalgorithm that amalgorithm, is that such a word? And this odd algorithm, amalgamy, uh, you know, of of a bunch of stuff that comes into a moment where I thought I was just doing what the director said. But because I was doing what the director said in a beat that was very well thought out from a moment in a screenplay that was wrestled to, to it, so that was edited to the ninth degree, and then a, a, a very, very intricate musical score was added, and it's projected up on the, on the wall with the right lumen count behind it, with the right amount of people in the audience, and everybody knew exactly what was going on in there. That's, that's what you get from a motion picture. And it took me a long time to realize that that doesn't happen unless everybody gives 100% of going there. Um, oh man, I, that, that's the high country. And I didn't realize that such a thing was possible. And I didn't realize how, 
the responsibility that every actor has in it until, I don't know, three and a half weeks ago. You know, I said not too long ago, I said I made 80 movies and four of them are pretty good. And everybody says, oh, Tom Hanks hates, you know, 76 of his movies. I said, no, I said, no there's no room for self-deprecating humor in any of this. The, the, the fact is, I don't know if it's any good or not, you know. I can only, you know, I can only go by, you know, I, I've seen all the movies once and uh, they never change. And I'm either satisfied or or not, but I don't know if they're any good. And I don't know if, you know, I don't know if I got there or not. It's for somebody else to to figure out, somebody else to say. We got to go for a quick break. But when we return, we will finish up my interview with Tom Hanks. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Tom Hanks. You might know him as one of the world's greatest movie stars. His new film is A Man Called Otto. It's in theaters now. Here's the rest of our conversation. Let me ask you this. You had been through all these family formations and schools and houses as a kid. Um, And I sort of loved it. You were... We can talk about that in a minute. Um, <laughs> the, the rest of the, family, wor- rest of the family me. didn't care too much about it. But, <laughs> that worries me, Tom, but <laughs> we'll, we'll return to it. Um, you know, you were married, had kids, and divorced when you were young. And, you know, you were obviously great at being ingratiating. Mm-hmm. Like, loved it enough to make it your career, you're funny, and so on and so forth. But it, it took until you're in your mid-30s before you have this idea of, I I should make a choice for myself. Right. Did you have a hard time as a young man, you know, acting's transitory too? Like you have these really intense relationships with people over the two months that a show plays or a a movie. I I live life getting really close to people and then never seeing them again. Yeah. So did you have a hard time having the kind of sustained intimacy with others or yourself that's required to like make real choices that have lasting impact and make Uh, art? Okay. That, you know, okay. First of all, go screw yourself with these important questions that are going to get to the bottom of my psyche, but no. You listen to public radio 17 uh, hours a day. You know what I'm here to do. Yeah. For 20, for 20 bucks a year. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually you have to pay somebody you have, for that. You have landed on something that can be one of the great crutches of doing what I do for a living is that it's transitory. You know, I get to pick up and take off. It's all done. Away we go. And the most we'll have from it is some sort of memory. You know, you mentioned that, uh, you know, my dad was married to a very nice lady and she had five great kids and we lived together for about two and a half years. Um. And my memory of it is sort of like, well, I went to school with them for a while. <laughs> you know, then we grew up, we went on, went on our separate ways. I remember the important lessons and I remember the secure times pretty well. There was a lot of, there was a lot of good laughs, uh, but there was also a huge amount of confusion that went along with it. Like I was the youngest of eight kids and how did, how did I end up here and well, Somebody please explain to me why we why we are moving again and no one ever seemed to explain to me. And what what came about from that is um not long after that, um, we started riding the bus a lot, um, going between my dad's house and my mom's house. 
And what it was is every, every holiday we'd be put on a bus and uh, there were three of us. And so my brother and sister often sat together. And so I was the third one out. So I always sat next to a window and some strangers sat next to me. And sometimes those strangers were benign. Sometimes they were cheerful. Sometimes they were malevolent. And sometimes they were scary. But what I always had was the vista of the window in order to look out and daydream. And going off into other scenarios, storytelling in my own head was a very, very powerful um, analgesic, if I'm using the word analgesic properly. I developed, I think, really quickly a comfort of being alone and in, enmeshed in a story of my own making. And it was all based on, you know, you know, popular imagery. You know, I was a hero. I was a fireman. I was an astronaut. I was, a, I was, a, you know, I was a member of the Fantastic Four, or I was a confused little boy who was being taken care of by benevolent, uh, you know, grownups. It doesn't seem like a coincidence that sixty percent of your most famous roles are you being one of those things and also being terrified. <laughs> well, I, I there might be a reason that I'm drawn towards things like Castaway. You You're know? always like, like a the 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 horrified captain of a boat, uh, or the you know, like yeah. you're a you're a regular hero thing, but also struggling with being terrified. I think that at the age of 66, I realized that a little bit uh, a while ago. But yeah. could you like sit with yourself without being in a fantastical world? Like at what point were you able to sit with yourself and be with yourself? Oh, rather than oh, oh. That's, a, that's a very good question. And I, I'm going to say that somewhere in the last 10 years or so, when I started, um, I have a company, it's called Playtone and we produce all kinds of stuff. I had an idea for a screenplay that was mine and mine alone, and I ended up writing it. Now, never mind, we made the movie and I was in it and we directed it. It's called That Thing You Do. The wonders are in breach of contract. Sorry. I'm really sorry, Mr. White. Well, don't worry. No one's going to prison, son. It's a very common tale. Well, maybe for you, but I was in a band and we still have a hit record. Yeah, you do. One hit wonders. It's a very common tale. My first time in a real recording studio. You want to hang around for a while? Okay by me. But you're out of the hotel this afternoon. Can't help that. You know, Guy, Horace was right about you. You are the smart one. Lenny is the fool. Jimmy is the talent. Faye is... Well, Faye is special, isn't she? I started writing it, and I got to the end of it. And, and that was the first time, the first time I did something all on my own that I did not share with anybody and was not relying on somebody else to come in and impact Later on, we made the movie. Of course, we did. But when I was actually writing a, a story, um, uh, that was a proactive, creative desire that didn't require anybody else inviting me into the process. And somewhere around in there, uh, a, I'll, I'll, can I call it discipline? A discipline and understanding of the solitary effort became something other than solitude, if that makes sense. 
Uh, so much of a life as an actor is waiting to be invited to go to the circus, uh, waiting to be, to you know to join the gang and put on a show. At the beginning of that, when I when I ended up becoming a screenwriter first and then a different kind of writer later on, that's when I think I just calmed down, settled down, and stopped trying to seduce the room on charm. And instead just said, I have this idea that I'm going to do the hard and heavy work. Eric Roth, who is a good friend of mine, he's a great screenwriter. And other writers that I've since become friends with, you know, and they talk about uh, writing. I said, uh, they say, you know, it's a solitary existence. <laughs> you do. You sit in a room and you think, well, here's just a person in the room. And that sounds like a cent. Uh, no, it's not because your head is so filled with this big, massive thing. And I, not to become overly poetic, but I was going to make the connection. It's not unlike when I said, and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed those four hour bus rides of looking out the window and daydreaming because the quality of the stories that I saw inside my own head were vast expanses for me. They were much, much bigger than being a confused nine-year-old kid on a Greyhound bus. Instead, I was, uh, I was uh, as, as big as any story that Shakespeare could have written. What about being married? Like You've been married to your <clears throat> wife for a long time now. And 34 years, 35 uh, in April. When you're married 35 years with children, you're raising children together, like you have to sit comfortably in family intimacy that you're hoping will last the rest of your life. I ask you this mostly because it was not comfortable for me. I've been with my wife since we were 17. It's still once in a while. Wow. I'm like, what am I doing? Well, sure. Yeah. But, yeah. But um, you didn't wear that. Did you? <laughs> You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like you must have been forced into a position where you couldn't be transitory. Like it must have been learning to well, you. Well, yeah, that, that's actually, I've, my, my son Colin has uh, just turned um, 45. Uh, and honestly, him being born was the greatest thing that could have happened to a, a guy who was as big a dumb a cluck as I was. Because I just would have been cast at sea. I just would have been a guy that would have done anything, would have tried any you know bad habit, would have developed any vice, would have skipped out on all responsibility. I just tried. I would just try to entertain myself and seduce everybody who was there. But when you have this thing that uh, this little boy that is this kind of miraculous kind of like creature that is both familiar and a mystery all at the same time. It required me to, uh, to you know, I'd, I'd not say I buckled down. You can ask all my kids and they'll tell you, our dad is the biggest chucklehead on the planet. Sometimes he's not there at all. But knowing that there was something that it was, I, I had to admit, this is my responsibility. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do this right, but I know how to approach it and try to learn what goes along with it. So, when you end up uh, having kids at an early age um, and you want to see them every day, which is the case with all my kids, I, I would like to have breakfast with them all every single, you know, I might just listen to them. And by the way, they, they might beat the living daylights out of me at the same time. And they might also tear me apart for all my faults, but they're not going to be wrong. You know, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, that's going to be what their opinions are. And it ends up being the thing that uh, I, I'll, I'll say that it, it gave me a degree of focus because as an actor, I knew that I had bills to pay. I had to pay the rent. I had to, you know, I had to, I had clothes and food and doctor's bills that 
you know, my kids needed to do. So I ended up doing jobs without even thinking about it, just because they gave me the opportunity to it. And it ended up being one of the greatest training grounds possible. But you also can't be glib in in a you know, long-term intimate relationship in the way that you can when you step into a room to pitch a sitcom well, no, or whatever. That, no, you, no, you can't. No, but you can be stupid. I mean, you can make all sorts of decisions and you can be, you know, you can make yourself fraught with being, uh, you know, too self-serving and too much in the moment. And uh, I, I have to say that uh, when it comes down to powers of uh, 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 skills and empathy, you know, I got to work on that stuff all the time because I did stuff by myself for so long. You know, sort of it's like, hey, dude, get on the bus, man. Otherwise, you're not going to go up to mom's house. So stop complaining and get along with it. That's not the best thing for it. That's not the best lesson for a kid to learn. And it's not great stuff in order to pass on to your own kids as well. Did you have to understand that you could admire your parents or like your parents, things about your parents, while also seeing that kind of, you know, my therapist would call it neglect. <laughs> I'm not going to say I relate to this, but um. <laughs> when when I transposed my parents' life at say at the age of 36 to my own life at the age of 36, I didn't have a clue. I was just beginning to figure things out. I'm going to cut my parents the same slack. Okay, right. But the question is, I I can tell that you cut people slack. (laughs) At the bare minimum, you're going to tell me that you cut people slack, but I sincerely believe that you're cutting your parents slack. Oh yeah. Like, was it, was it hard for you to get to the point where you could engage with the problems of that childhood that you yeah. told me was wonderful already earlier on. No, I said I liked it. I didn't say it was wonderful. I said, uh, and by why, by saying I liked it, I think I I think I liked the variety. You know, I will tell you that uh, in, in various incarnations, I came home to a house that uh, was not the most welcoming place in the world. Not because of any sort of malevolence, just because everybody was so much involved in their own self-drama, they didn't have room for anybody else's needs. And that's not a great thing to realize when you're 11 years old, all right? Uh, my The great love of my father's life, my dad passed away, I'm going to say, uh, 30 years ago. Uh, but the great love of his life, my stepmother, his third wife, passed away just earlier this year. And I got together with my former step-siblings. I mean, we ended up talking about <laughs> how truly horatious a job these people did when they first got married, along with the incredible job they did with us afterwards. Because they ended up saving my life a couple of times, and they were so gracious, and they were so forgiving, and they understood exactly what they had done wrong, and they did not feel good about it. But they were also incredibly open. I'm going to tell you, but at various grandparents' days, both my real mom, my birth mom, and my stepmother would come to grandparents' days to my kids' schools, and they would sit together. The idea of my mom and my stepmom sitting together was an impossibility for a vast chunk of my childhood, so much so that I said, hey, it's a good thing dad's dead, because if he saw this, this would kill him, seeing you guys sitting. And they laughed. And the wisdom of time that goes by and the acknowledgement that we did not do everything right, and there's no excuse for it, there's no defense for it, and you can't even say, hey, I did the best I could, because even that's mealy mouth. 
all you can do is bow your head and say, yes, that, that's, what, that's what the truth was. So when I say I cut my, my parents slack, I think I did it in the way any kid would to, uh, I, look, I, had, I know a couple of people who said I would not trade my childhood for anything. It was fabulous. And I just want to say, well, your last name is not spelled H-A-N-K-S, because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that we would trade off. But what are you going to do? You know, you 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 can't change what it is. And what I what you know, I and I you know, I I've weighed plenty of of the stuff that goes on to those moments where I felt welcome in the house, and those other moments where that this is the last place I want to be sitting in my dinner table. It, in my house, in this family of mine, I don't want to be here. And actually, nobody wants to be here, but here we are. But you can, you can, tra- you must transpose that into that which did not kill you makes you better. And we'll say this there was no, there was no abuse, there was no physical thing. All there was was a real confusion as opposed to how to express or how to explain what the hell was going on. And shame on all of us. The easiest thing to do was not say a thing. And shame on the parents who taught me how to not say a thing. But now it's my responsibility, ain't it? It's my responsibility to understand that and try to come to all of my kids. My oldest is 45. My youngest is 26. And I first apologize for everything I've done wrong. <laughs> hey, I'm so sorry about everything. And then uh, uh, then just get into it and start saying, okay, so what's the truth about what's going on? Tell me more about this. That's That's... That's the best I can do right now. And that's not seduction. That's literally saying, help me no more. Help me no more about this. Educate me, if you will, and come at me with anything you got. So Tom, I'm, I'm grateful to you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank do you. I owe you $150 for these 50 minutes? I mean, honestly, I don't see any plaques on the wall of this studio anywhere. Don't, don't you have a... You don't see yeah. a bachelor's degree in American Studies see, from don't. UC Santa Cruz. I, oh, you see, oh, you're a banana slug, man. Not to brag. Pass, man. fail, no grades, please. My niece went to UC Santa Cruz. Thank you, and thank you for and thank you for your work. Your your success is oh, so well earned. Thank you. I Tom. really enjoyed talking about this. This was great. Tom Hanks, folks, what a guy. His newest movie is A Man Called Otto. You can catch it now in theaters. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. At my house in Los Angeles, we're waging all-out war on clothes moths. That means fumigation and filling contractor garbage bags with woolens and dry ice that I bought at the dry ice store and then closing them up. And then the dry ice turns into CO2 vapor and then it kills the little mothies. Sorry if you're a moth fan. I wish moths all the best outside my house as long as they're not eating my clothes. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by the Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. You can find Bullseye on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. We share all our interviews on social media there. You can also find them on our website at MaximumFun.org or in our podcast feed. And I think that's about it. Just remember, 
All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.